Tonight we're going to look at one of the one of the real weird passages in the Old Testament. And you know, our topic this summer is pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, all right? Now, by the way, my name's Kevin Twitt. I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, it stands for, uh, at Belmont University. But as I was telling some of the people as they came in, this is definitely not an all-Belmont group here. We've got Vanderbilt students, we've got MTSU students, we've got Belmont students, we've got people that have graduated, they're still hanging around, we'd love to have you hang around. Uh, and then we've got people that are here just for the, either home for the summer, they go to school elsewhere, or some people, we always manage to have people that are here working internships, that maybe this is the only summer they'll ever be in Nashville, and they seem to find their way here, and we're great, it's great to have all you guys here. Um, this summer we're doing pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, and this is one of those passages that if you would read it, you may wonder where in the world is Jesus in this story. It's a weird story, and yet Jesus himself says that this story is about him, right? So I'm on, I'm on good grounds for saying that this is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament because he uses it himself in one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, in John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 3, for God so loved the, you know, the world, that, that passage 316. Um, actually, right before that, the two verses before that, he talks about this story. But it's a weird story. Let's read it. To Numbers 21. I have it on the, the little handouts that I gave you. Because um, we're going to look at that. We're also going to look at a passage in Deuteronomy 8 um, to help us understand what God's trying to do here in Numbers 21. So, talking about the Israelites. This is when they're wandering around in the desert. The exodus has happened. They're out of slavery, out of Egypt, but now they're wandering around in the desert and they're getting fairly frustrated, um, the, the Israelite people are. So, they, as the Israelite people, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. This is God's word. But it's a passage that provokes lots of questions. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And we pray that you would help us to understand this portion of your word. What is it that you would have for us here tonight? We pray that you would open our ears, open our hearts, send your spirit to do that work so that we may behold wonderful things in your word and put our hope and trust in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a passage that provokes a lot of questions. We're going to look at some of those questions tonight. The first one, obviously, is what's the sin that provokes the Lord to send snakes? And we're going to talk next about why snakes? Of all the things that the Lord could have done, why does he send snakes? What is this sort of weird way of healing is another question. Looking at a bronze serpent, it almost seems like an idol. You know, this is after the golden calf deal. What's the difference between a bronze serpent and a golden calf? And why is God telling him to do this? And then finally, we're going to 
um, see actually there's a place later in the Bible where this bronze serpent makes a reappearance. And we're going to learn something from that as well. So that's, the, that's kind of where we're going tonight. The first is, what is the sin that brings the snakes? And again, why snakes of all things? I mean, of all the things that God could have done in response to their murmuring, to their impatience, to their speaking against God and against Moses, why snakes? Now, we read this passage, and I suspect that you're like me, and when the first time you read this passage, you go, that seems awful harsh. They're getting impatient. I mean, they're, you know, wandering through a desert for crying out loud. And, you know, it's hot, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry, and they don't know where they're going. It seems that they're going, you know, all around. I don't know if you've ever seen a map of the wanderings of of Israel through the desert. Sometimes if you've got a a fancy Bible in the back, there'll be a map. And and the map will show you that the route goes all over the place. And this is when they were being led by a pillar of, you know, fire. And, you know, I mean, God himself was leading them. And, and, and yet it seems like they keep backtracking and doubling back on themselves and all that kind of stuff. So it seems that murmuring should be understandable. I mean, is murmuring really that big a deal? Is it that big a deal? Uh, that's the sin that God's people have engaged in here. But do you really think that murmuring should desu- d- 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 result in death? Murmuring. What is Murmuring. The, the way the Bible understands murmuring, murmuring is slander against God. Murmur is slander against God. It's slandering his character, contending that he doesn't care and has no power to do anything anyway. They're basically saying, God, you're doing a terrible job of being God. You have no right to be God. If we were God, we would be doing a whole lot better. Do you recognize that? (laughs) You ever felt that? You ever thought that? You ever said that? They're, They're basically saying he's not providing. You're not providing. And you owe us better than this. After all, we left Egypt. We followed you. Did you just bring us out here to die? We deserve better than that. Now, the irony, of course, in this speaking against God is that he is at this very moment providing for them in all kinds of miraculous ways. A little earlier in Numbers, actually the first three verses of Numbers 21, tells about another battle in which the Israelites were remarkably delivered by the power of God. Or they wouldn't even be around to be murmuring. That was the first three verses. And then in verse 4, they're murmuring and they're speaking against him. It's a strong, a strong word. The, the, the miserable food that they're speaking of, do you, do you know what that is? It's the manna. The manna. This, this miraculous bread from heaven that the Lord gave to his people. That's what they're calling miserable food that they detest. You see, the, the thing is, it's not just that God is not providing for them. He's not providing what they want. He's not providing what they want. See, they don't want God to be the one to determine what provision looks like. They want to be able to place their order with God and have him fill it. The way I I like to put it is they regard God as the divine pharmacist rather than the divine physician. In other words, rather than letting him diagnose what the problem is, 
they, they know what the problem is, or at least they think they know what the problem is. All they need God for is to do what they think he needs to do. They've written the prescription, right? They've diagnosed themselves. They've written the prescription, and now they're handing it off to God and saying, come on, where are my drugs? <laughs> you know, this is what I need. Often we want God to be that divine pharmacist rather than our divine physician. So that's the sin of murmuring, speaking against God. And it's, it's heightened, particularly where this chapter falls in the Bible, by all of the Lord's deliverances up to this point, all through the wandering of the desert, in spite of the fact that when God sent Moses to deliver these people, they said, we don't want you. We would rather stay in slavery. And as soon as they got on the other side of the Red Sea, they said, yeah, you've brought us out here to die. Again and again and again and again and again and again, right? And yet God is still delivering them, providing for them. And yet they're speaking against him and they're slandering him all the while. Why snakes? Why snakes? Doesn't that seem like a strange thing? I don't think you can read this passage and reflect on it very long before you start thinking about other significant snakes in the Bible. Snakes don't appear that often. I mean, they appeared in the, in the ten plagues, right, with Moses when he throws down his staff, turns into a snake, and then the other magicians right, try to do the same. It's, of course, Moses' snake gobbles up all the other snakes, right? But I, I think, really, if, if you've got murmuring, you've got being disappointed with God, and you've got snakes all together, you have to think about the Adam and Eve story. You have to think about Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because what you have here, what you have here is the exact same heart attitude that, that was going on with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve felt that God was holding out on them, that he wasn't giving them the good stuff. They thought that he was withholding his best stuff from them, that he wasn't caring for them. You see, really, if, if you look at the, at the creation and the fall account, and you look at it carefully, what you find is, in, in some ways, the first sin was believing that God was not good. And it's really interesting. You know, God had said, don't eat of this particular tree. But actually, Adam and Eve, what they told the serpent was, God said we couldn't even touch it. They've already made God out to be more of a tyrant. They've already made him to be unreasonable. He didn't say you couldn't touch it, but they've added that to the prohibition, which is a, a very revealing statement that helps understand what's going on with their heart. They feel like he's being unfair. And when they see that that tree is good for food and pleasing to the eye, they decide to do what God said not to do. In other words, they say, you're not doing a very good job being God. We're going to try and see how, how, how it works out. The same thing is still going on. It's very much the same story in a lot of ways. The real sin here and the real sin in the garden is rather than worshiping God and thanking him for what he sees fit to provide, they and we try to use him as a means to an end. A means to an end. But you see, God will never let anybody use him as a means to an end because he's too passionate about his glory. He will never be a means to an end. 
There's a passion for His glory and a passion for us. And, and because of that, He can never let us be using Him as a means to an end. We may think murmuring is no big deal, but God sees in it evidence that we would prefer to use Him as a means to an end than actually have Him and worship Him. I, I, I know when, this, uh, when I kind of realized this myself, I, when I became a Christian in ninth grade, if, if you had asked me then, I would have said, well, you know, yeah, somebody explained the gospel to me, and I understood I was a sinner, and I needed to be forgiven. But it, really, the subtext underneath my life was, I'm miserably lonely. The only people that have ever been nice to me have been Christians. Oh, that kid's a Christian? Huh. I guess I should be a Christian. Maybe I'll get more friends. There was no doubt, as I've reflected on it over the years, that I was using God as a means to an end. Now, of course, everybody in coming to Christ, in a sense, comes with wrong motives. If you could have pure motives in coming to Christ, you wouldn't need Christ. Okay? So don't get so hung up on that. But one of the things that he does in his faithfulness and in his love, as you walk with the Lord, is he begins to show you, yeah, there's some, some, some issues here you know, even from the very establishment of this relationship that, that are going to have to be dealt with. And I remember, you know, when I went to seminary, I remember taking the Myers-Briggs test one time. And I remember the guy who sort of went, back, went through the results with me saying, Kevin, there's a lot of, lot of uh, suppressed anger that this test is pointing to. I was like, what? I'm not angry. I used to be angry before I was a Christian. I haven't, I haven't been angry since, really. Um, and he said, well... You might want to explore that because these tests usually are pretty, pretty good at picking up on that kind of stuff. Okay, I graduated from seminary about a year later, came down here to Nashville. I went back up to this church in St. Louis where I'd went to seminary um, with a couple folks from Christ Community Church, Scott Rowley and Scotty Smith. Some of you guys may know them. Buddy Green was there. And we went and basically did a week-long conference at this church to basically try to bring the gospel to them and help them sort of, you know, be revived as a church, okay? So I remember the first night Scotty is preaching, and he's preaching on, you got it, anger. <laughs> and I'm sitting there up in the band. I was playing guitar in the band, and I was kind of standing behind him. And as he was going through that sermon, it sort of began to dawn on me, I'm incredibly angry. Not only that, I knew why I was angry. Because God had never given me friends like I asked and like I thought I would get. Never. And it was almost weird how things that should like work out to be friendships almost, he seemed to like thwart them. Like it wasn't just like normal loneliness. It was like he was going out of his way to keep me from finding friends. That's all I really wanted. Well, see, that was the problem. That's all I really wanted was friends. I remember beginning, this was sort of dawning on me. I was like, wow, I've been pissed off at God from the moment I've become a Christian. Right? At this point now, what, 15 years? And at the same time, I realized that God was still pursuing me. Even at that moment, even through that service, saying, you know what? Yeah, you've been trying to use me as a means to an end the whole time we've been together. (laughs) But I love you, and I'm not going to stand for that anymore. Now, I don't know what it is about you. I, I know that so often we think we're being so reasonable in our demands Our demands seem so reasonable. I remember talking to a friend of mine who, I don't know why he's still not married. He was a friend of mine in college. He's a great guy. He's still not married. But one time I was talking with him on the phone a few years ago, and I just had to say, brother, 
I know it seems perfectly reasonable. It seems reasonable to me. But God will not submit to your demands. Right? What a, what a weird passage. What is it that you think you need more than God himself? What is it you think you could never forgive God for if he took it away from you? What do you have right now that if God took it away, you, you, you feel it would be really difficult for you to ever forgive him? What is it that if you never get it, if you never get it before you die, will tempt you to turn back from following Jesus? Is it respect, marriage, children? Has this happened to people you know? So many people that turn back from following Jesus, it's because they've been trying to use him as a means to an end, and they finally have found that it's not going to work. And at that point, you either fall on your knees and worship him, or you turn away and you look for some other utilitarian God that will get you what you want. College is often a time when the rubber meets the road. But so is midlife. In a lot of ways, midlife crisis connects to this. I thought my life would turn out differently. God hasn't given me what he wanted, what I wanted. I better take matters into my own hands. Maybe a new wife, maybe a new husband, maybe a new job. Maybe I don't need kids anymore. What, whatever. Has this happened to your parents? Th- this, this must be dealt with. Using God as a means to an end will will come to the surface at some point. You may be asking, you see, God to fill one prescription, but he's made a very different diagnosis about what you really need and is actively working to bring healing into your life. But you see, God's healing is almost never according to our prescription. It's almost never the path that we would choose. This is a great picture of that, isn't it? This is a strange way of bringing healing. There is absolutely no doubt about it. What's the point of it? What's the point? I mean, think about some of the questions that that rise when you read this passage and you think about it. How long does it take to make a bronze serpent? Has anybody ever cast bronze before? I don't think it's something that happens right away. You understand there are poisonous snakes all around these people, biting them, killing them, and God says make a bronze serpent. That doesn't seem like a very quick solution for a really immediate need, right? And doesn't it seem cruel to make people look at the very thing that's killing them and has killed their family and their friends? That seems bizarre. And why put the bronze snake up on a pole when you've got poisonous snakes at your feet? Wouldn't you want to keep looking down? I would. I wouldn't want to be looking up when the the danger is down below, right? There's all kinds of weird things about... Now, sometimes, see, we're good Christians, so we don't think the Bible should be weird. So we don't let ourselves ask questions about a passage like this. This passage is supposed to be weird. You're supposed to sort of gag on this this healing that God proposes here. Because it should really cause you to stop and to ponder and say, what is God doing here? Obviously, if all they had, if their only problem was they were dying from snake bite, don't you think God would have done something more efficient? I think the fact that the the healing proposed is so weird, it's so bizarre, that it must mean that there's something deeper going on 
than just people biting, you know, being bit by snakes and dying. In other words, God is after a deeper healing than just the healing of snake bites. Is he, if he was just after, why didn't he just remove the snakes? He sent the snakes. He could remove the snakes. Instead, he leaves the people in the midst of this trial and asks them to look at him, to look to his provision in the midst of the trial rather than removing the trial. Doesn't that seem like God? In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2 tells us that this is exactly what God is about. If you want to understand the whole wandering in the desert episode and what it's about and what God did that for, Deuteronomy 8 is the place to go. Deuteronomy is basically the sermon that Moses preaches at the end of his life using the whole first four books of Moses as sermon material. So he basically applies and gives them insight onto what God was doing with all this stuff. In Deuteronomy 8, starting at verse 2, it says this, and I put it down in your, you can look in the Bible, but I also put it on the outline for you. It says this, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And you see how all these clauses add, build on each other? He did this to do this, to do this, to do that, to do this. And what's the ultimate The ultimate goal, according to the passage I just read, it's in verse 3, the second half of verse 3, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Hmm. That seems like what God was trying to teach Adam and Eve. Seems like that's actually a pretty hard lesson. To look to the Lord's provision, to trust his word more than even what makes sense to us at times, to trust the Lord's word more than what other people say about us, it's very difficult. And that's what the Lord is, is doing here. Now, having people look at a bronze snake seems pretty bizarre and even makes you wonder, again, what's the difference between a golden calf and a bronze serpent? And, uh, you know, actually where the story goes by the time it gets to second kings the bronze serpent has become just like the golden calf but we'll get to that in a minute but but i want to make this point here the cross is even stranger as strange as this is the cross is even stranger and it doesn't seem so strange to to people who've been around christianity all their lives i I remember the first time this really struck me i was in college i read a little little essay by A.W. Tozer. I always loved A.W. Tozer in college. He was always pissed off about something. And, and, I, and I just liked that, I guess. That was sort of what I was into in college, right? We already know about my anger issues. So I remember him saying that in, in the Roman times, people didn't wear crosses. Cross wore people. He said, how bizarre would it be to put, you know, an executioner's, you know, an electric chair on a chain and, and walk around with it around your neck. That we be, the cross has become such a domesticated image that, that, we, that we 
we, we miss how bizarre it is that God's plan for healing and restoration and reconciliation of the world to himself is a cross, is bizarre. It is. Healing comes through looking at the cross. And Jesus says this in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, right? I put it there on the, on the outline for you. Um, as Jesus is, is talking with Nicodemus, he actually gets really mad at Nicodemus at one point. They're talking about spiritual life. And he says, you, Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. I know the, the NIV says a teacher, but it's really the definite article there in the Greek. You're the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand what I'm saying? And then he, he actually sort of uses a passage here in Numbers. It's part of the Mosaic Law, which the Pharisees were supposed to be the experts in. And he says, you don't understand this story, for instance. You don't understand that you need to look to God's provision to be saved. And here is God's provision standing right before you. And there's coming a day when the Son of Man will be lifted up. Just as this snake was lifted up in the desert and the people looked at it and lived, so the Son of Man will be lifted up and all that look at him will live. Now, of course, in the Gospel of John, whenever John uses that phrase, lifted up, talking about Jesus, it refers to the cross. You can go through, you can look in your concordance, and you can find that. Everywhere that he talks about the Son of Man being lifted up, it doesn't mean put up on a stage where people can applaud. It means being lifted up on the cross, because they would nail you to the cross on the ground, and then they would lift it up. And that's what he's talking about. So he's saying, again, that you think that the this, this serpent episode was bizarre. Well, you haven't seen nothing yet. Because healing is going to come through God's provision. I am the provision of God right here before you. The one you need for your healing. And it's going to come through me being lifted up. Look at the cross. You see, what's so bizarre about the cross and why it's actually very much like this serpent episode is that just as these people had to face their sin, they had to be reminded of their sin in looking at this serpent for healing. To look at the cross is to be reminded again and again and again that we deserve death and hell. God will not allow us to be healed any other way than by being reminded that what we deserve is death and hell and that Jesus took death and hell for us. In other words, you can't come to healing, Christianity says, by bypassing your sin and making light of it. Healing comes through casting all our hope on God's provision. And this is another lesson you get here. You can't keep one eye on the snakes and one eye on the bronze serpent and live. You have to turn your full gaze on this bronze serpent. All your hopes, no hedging your bets. What Martin Luther used to call faith is a living, daring hope in God. Right? Religion, salvation, sorry, requires casting off all other hope. Where are you looking for hope? See, this is why so often people don't really don't really get the gospel until everything else has fallen apart in their lives. Right? It's so difficult for people who have so many things going for us to really trust in Jesus alone. One of my favorite quotes, I'm always, I always love this story, David Dixon, who if you've ever heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, David Dixon is one of the guys that worked on that. He's actually a Scot. There was a, a few Scots that went over to England and helped the English work on this document. And David Dixon was one of them. And on his deathbed, he was asked, David, how is it with your soul? This is one of the, the best deathbed lines ever. He said, I've taken my good deeds 
and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I fled from both of them to Christ, and in him I have peace. Do you know what it means to flee not just from your bad deeds, but your good deeds? You know, salvation does not come to any Israelite who says, you know, hey, I, was, I didn't really speak up, God. I didn't have anything to do with this, right? No, the only way to be saved is to identify with God's people, to identify with the sin, and to look alone, look at this, this snake alone. There's no excuses. You have to own your sin and come to Christ anyway. You have to own your sin and put all your hope on Jesus. That's what faith is. Again, you know, God's goal with Israel, God's goal with us, is not just to provide enough for us that we can run off and live as we like. His goal, his goal has always been to make us dependent upon him. Not because he gets his jollies out of that, but it's because what we're made for. We were made to be in a relationship with him. And if we're not, everything else falls apart eventually. And yet God's people are always wanting to just get enough God to cover their bases. Enough God for hellfire insurance, right? But then they want to still have freedom to live their life the way they want. This is a story about how that doesn't work. Faith doesn't look like that. And God, you know, if God wanted to give them a smooth life, he could have just removed the snakes. But his goal is deeper. So he wants to turn their why questions. Why have you brought us into the desert? Why have you not given us food and water like we want? He wants to turn those why questions into who questions. And that's always what God is doing. He's always wanting to turn all of your why questions, all the things that you're basically sitting in judgment upon God and saying he hasn't done his job very well. He wants to turn all those why questions into who questions. You see, murmuring is usually expressed in questioning why God's doing what he's doing without really caring to know him more deeply through what he's doing. That's the great tragedy of murmuring. It's not just a bad thing, but it takes you off course of what God is doing. Instead of caring, what is he doing? Why did he send snakes? What is he trying to teach us? How will we come to know him more deeply through this? How will we come to know that his provision will bring healing? How can we, instead of knowing that, we ask these why questions, why questions, why questions. It's like we're going down this this river and we get caught in these little eddies, you know, over here. The why questions are appropriate. God doesn't bust on you when you ask why questions, but he wants you to not just sit in the why questions forever. He wants the why questions to turn into who questions. Who questions about him and about you. Rather than Israel saying, you know, why have you brought us into this desert? They should have been reflecting on, oh, you brought us into this desert. We were in slavery. We had no hope in the world and you brought us here. Thank you. If you did that, surely, surely you're going to care for us. And you do care for us, right? So they failed to ask who questions about themselves. Instead of saying, why, 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 they should have said, who are we to be asking why, why, why? We're people who wouldn't be here if God hadn't intervened in a miraculous way. And they also failed to ask who questions about God. What kind of God takes people that don't even want to be saved, and he doesn't take no for an answer, and he does all kinds of things and puts up with their, with their, their, their ungrateful hearts and still pursues them, Right? 
They never ask those kind of questions. We never ask those kinds of questions. God wants us to be asking not just why questions, but who are you, God, that you would save any of us? See, I, I think that I think this is exactly what's what's going on here and what's going on with the cross. I um I, I actually wonder I got time to do this real quick. I put a pretty extended quote here from John Newton's letters, and I won't read all of it. John Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, a lot of other hymns that you know, How Sweet the Name Jesus Sounds, um, Let Us Love and Sing a Wonder that we sang tonight. That's a John Newton hymn. Um, really, I don't know. I mean, I, I love his hymns, but I love his letters easily as much as his hymns. Um, he was known in his day not as the greatest hymn writer, I mean, he lived just after Wesley and Watts, right? So he was in some pretty tough company for hymns. And he wrote with William Cooper, who was the poet laureate of England. So, you know. But he was known as the supreme spiritual counselor of his day through his letters. So I commend to you the letters of John Newton if you're looking for something to read for the summer. One of his letters is about this. Somebody's basically asking him, what point could Bod possibly have in allowing us to still struggle with sin? In other words, when God saved us, he could have taken all of our sin out of our hearts. Why didn't he do that? So Newton writes actually several letters, and one of them is entitled, Advantages of Remaining Sin. It's such a bizarre topic, isn't it? What advantage could there be to us remaining sinners? And here's what he says. The unchangeableness of the Lord's love and the riches of his mercy are more illustrated by the multiplied pardons he bestows upon his people than if they needed no forgiveness at all. In other words, one of the ways that you actually grow to appreciate the cross is by having to ask for the forgiveness of the cross over and over and over and over again. That's interesting. He talks about this as well. He says, with God's people, and this is the next part that I underlined, when after a long experience of their own deceitful hearts, after repeated proofs of their weakness, willfulness, ingratitude and insensibility, they find that none of these things can separate them from the love of God in Christ. Jesus becomes more and more precious to their souls. They love much because much has been forgiven them. Isn't that what Jesus said? He did. He said that to this religious guy who couldn't understand why this woman was wasting all this perfume. Right? Jesus said she loves much because she's been forgiven much. You didn't even give me a, a, a basin or a towel to wash my feet. You don't care at all. Further, he says, a spirit of humility, which is both the strength and beauty of our profession. In other words, he says, what makes Christians beautiful is humility, a spirit of humility. He says that this spirit of humility is greatly promoted by our feeling as well as reading. In other words, it's not enough just to read it. You've got to feel it. That when we would do good, evil is present with us. In other words, until you feel Romans 7, you don't just read that it's theoretical, but you know it. Until you, you, you know, um, you feel as well as have read that when we would do good, evil is present with us. A broken and contrite spirit is pleasing to the Lord who has promised to dwell with those who have it. And experience shows that the exercise of all of our graces is in proportion to the humbling sense we have of the depravity of our nature. But that we are so totally depraved is a truth which no one ever truly learned by being only told it. Get that. The fact that you are totally depraved 
The fact that you are still willfully sinning against God every moment is not something that you really get merely by being told it. And one of the ways that God helps you to understand it is by removing his restraining hand of grace and letting you feel where your heart would go if it wasn't for his grace intervening at every moment. He said, whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angered. See, if these people were truly humbled, they wouldn't be angry. They'd be grateful for whatever God had given them. Whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angered and will not be positive and rash, will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there be a difference, in other words, between the fellow sinners and between yourself, it is grace that has made it, and that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart, and under all trials and afflictions he will look to the hand of the Lord and lay his mouth in the dust, acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved." I commend to you the, the letters of John Newton. Humility is a much more difficult thing to work in somebody's life than just healing them of snake bites. Dependence upon God in humility is a very difficult thing. And God works really, really hard to work it in our lives. I would say he works our whole lives to this end, right? We need to look to God in the provision Let me uh, jump to this last little section here, because it's really interesting. So often, when the Lord does give us a provision and does deliver us, you know what's really interesting is we can even turn that into an idol and fail to look to God through the provision. In, In other words, so often we pray to God, Lord, help me in this. He helps us, and then we look to the thing that he sent to help us rather than looking to him. In which case, our faith actually doesn't grow. Our faith doesn't grow like it should by saying, the Lord has has answered my prayer. The Lord has cared for me. The Lord has not left me or forsake me. But instead, we look at this thing. You know, one of my favorite examples of this is Bart Simpson's prayer, where right before a meal one time, he says, Lord, we pay for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Right? And, and, And we do that all the time. The Lord sends something, you know, sometimes it's more indirect. And, and, and yet, so we begin to trust in our jobs, or we trust in our education, or we trust in our relationships, rather than trusting in God. See, listen, you can't get married to somebody and put all your hope and trust in them. It would be a disaster. The only way that you can walk down that aisle and promise, not knowing what the future will bring, promise to love somebody through, you know, in life and death and sickness and in health, richer or poor, all that stuff, is only if, you, if you're trusting that God loves this person more than you do and can give you his love for this person. I mean, you can't possibly hope to love another sinner consistently for your life, right? So, so often we look to the provision rather than to the provider, and that's exactly what happens to Israel. Here's what's fascinating. In 2 Kings chapter 18, it's just a couple little verses. But lo and behold, this serpent makes a reappearance. Look at this. I put it in your, your outline. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, he's a good king. 
He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. That's the, people where, that's the places where people were worshiping false gods. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Asherah was one of the false gods. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. They named it, and they were burning incense to it. Do you see this? They had turned the Lord's provision into an idol. They even gave it a name, and they worshipped it. Rather than it leading them to trust God more, they were trying to control it to get what they wanted. That's why they were burning incense to it, to try to get it to do what they wanted it to do. Wow. But God is a good God. And so he raised up Hezekiah to take away the provision which was keeping them from trusting God. Now the question is, when God does that to to you, do you murmur or do you say, thank you, God? Do we get caught up in endless why questions and accusations against him? Or do we let this take us deeper into the who questions? God, you're so faithful that even when I would worship your provision, you're so faithful to come in and risk me misunderstanding what you're doing, risk me screaming obscenities at you, yet still you love me and still you put up with that and still you pursue me. Who are you? Who are you? Do you ever ask that question of God? If you never ask that question of God, I really wonder how spiritual you really are. If you think you know who God is and you don't ever need to ask him that question, look out. You're probably worshiping Nehushtan. The why questions, again, they're appropriate, but don't let them become little eddies. Ultimately, the only way to be able to truly trust a God like this is to continue to cast our eyes upon Jesus, hanging on his his cross, because that's where the why questions dissolve into the ultimate who questions. There are some why questions that you will never have answered in this life. But the who questions, I think, give them a context that enables us to continue on. I remember um, one time meeting with a girl. This was years and years and years ago. Nobody, you guys wouldn't know her. She's been out of RUF for 10 years now. But I remember talking with her at one point about some of the horrific abuse she'd suffered at the hands of her father. And I remember as we, as we were talking about this, we were looking at a passage in Isaiah where it says that in all our distress, he too is distressed. And as I was talking to her and she's asking this question, like, I don't have the answer to that why question. But if, if what Isaiah is saying here is true, that in, God, in all our distress, God is, is distressed, I think there's another question, an even more profound question, that while it doesn't answer your question, at least it puts it in a context. And that's this. Not only do you have to ask, why didn't God end your suffering, but why didn't God end his own suffering, because he was not immune to suffering in the midst of that. Who, what kind of God, what kind of God enters into pain that he doesn't need to enter into? What kind of God comes down, takes on flesh, and walks around and sees the brokenness that sin has made of his beautiful creation firsthand, and then goes and dies For those that made such a mess of his beautiful creation? 
Again, it doesn't answer the why questions. But one thing it does is it keeps you from falling into the pit of despair of saying, God obviously doesn't care. You can't say that. Even if you can't get all of your questions answered, they have to ultimately rest in the who questions. The who questions. Who is this God? Who is this God? I don't know what God's doing, but I can't, it can't possibly be an expression of his wrath because Jesus was lifted up and suffered death and hell on the cross, right? So while you may not know what God is doing, you may not know what God has done. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what God has done in your life and what he's going to do. But I do know this. It's always connected to him showing you his love and his faithfulness in a deeper way than you ever dreamed was possible. Uh, we're going to sing a hymn to close that, that I think is, is perfect for this. George Matheson's, O love that will not let me go. Matheson was a guy that wrestled with what we're talking about tonight. Matheson, when he was in seminary, was a brilliant seminary student, top of his class, destined for great things, married to a wonderful woman he was deeply in love with. And then he began to lose his sight. Nobody knew why. But by the end of his educational career, he was blind. And his fiancée had left him, said she didn't want to go through life married to a blind man. He pressed on, eventually became a pastor of a pretty large congregation in Edinburgh. His sister helped him. She lived with him and would help him basically take care of the house and all that sort of stuff. But on the day he wrote this hymn, it was her wedding day. He'd stayed behind. The whole rest of the family had went to the wedding. And he wrote in his journal that something occurred between he and the Lord of incredible sadness and pain. He never detailed what it was. And he said that in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that wrestling, this hymn came to him almost like it was dictated. He wrote over 200 hymns. He said he never wrote a hymn like this. He wrote this one in 15 minutes and didn't change a word. Pretty interesting. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine that he must have been thinking about not only who is going to care for me now. My sister, you know, my sister is is leaving, this one who's been God's provision. He wrestles with, will I hold on to the provision and curse God, or will I let the provision go and trust God that he who provided her can provide someone else, but also his his marriage that never happened, his wedding that never was, right? As he wrestles with that, what is it that, that brings him back? It's not some trite, superficial idea. Well, just, you know, when God sends, you know, lemons, make lemonade. It's no, in the midst of the tragedy, in the midst of the difficulty, one thing I know, that God made a promise to Noah that he would never destroy the world again. And he sealed that promise with a bow. And the picture of the bow there in Genesis is, is a, the Hebrew word is for a battle bow, not the bow like some of you ladies might wear in your hair from time to time. The battle bow stands as tall as I am. And if you think about the rainbow, which way is it cocked? At us? No, at God himself. The sign that God gives his people to assure them that every time, imagine what it was like after the flood, every time it rained. And then to see the rain end and to see this bow, God saying, I am not going to destroy you again. Even though the bow deserves to be pointed at you, it's pointed at me. And not only did he make that promise, but he kept that promise at the cross when that battle bow was loosed even though God himself did nothing wrong. So Matheson looks at that and he says, whenever trials come, 
One thing you can know, if you're in Christ, the wrath of God has been satisfied. If you don't know that, as the Puritans used to say, every trial is a double trial. Because you, not only do you wonder and wrestle with the trial itself, but you wonder, has God forsaken me? God forsook Jesus on the cross, so he will never forsake his people. Let's sing about that as we uh, celebrate this God who we don't often understand, but who is worthy to be trusted.